Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, "A Rose for Emily" by William Faulkner. This was first published in a magazine called The Forum, April 1930. Uh, it's his first professional sale, I guess, or first professional magazine sale. Um, I am not super duper duper familiar with Faulkner, but I did have one experience uh, in some early university English class where <laughs> we read As a, As a Lay Dying. And yeah. I was like, "Why these Americans sure are weird. <laughs> I, and I, I think I thought that because uh, it was probably an American literature course or something like that. And this was like the first book. I, I, I compare like this to Emil, uh, A Rose to Emily or As I Lay Dying to Ernest Hemingway, who I think is, you know, similar era, but uh, quite a different writer in in the style. But yeah, uh, Faulkner is heavily laden with style. And it's not um, overwhelming, but it feels like it could be at any point, you know? I feel like um, I'm under many, many layers of storytelling and it's uh it's power it's a real power but it's not light reading even though it's only about 23 minutes to read it is uh it feels like it's a lot more dense than a normal 23 minute story (laughs) like it's a it's like a a heavy bread (laughs) and every bite has a lot of work in the flavors. <laughs> I'm using a lot of weird metaphors. What do you know you about are. Faulkner? I know a lot about Faulkner. Um, in fact, uh, Joseph Blotner, may he rest in peace, was a, a dear friend of mine and was uh, Faulkner's official um, liaison when... Faulkner, when Joe was a young assistant professor and Faulkner was a writer in residence at the University of Virginia. And uh, Joe's enormous biography of, uh, of Faulkner is considered the definitive record of Faulkner's life. Um, I never met Faulkner, but uh, I knew Joe well and heard lots and lots about him. And I've I taught Faulkner back in the day when I was teaching American literature, and I've got to say that uh, A Rose for Emily is, <laughs> I wouldn't have called it work. Uh, I would, but I like your your notion of it being dense bread. I think that um, the, the more you chew on this story, mm. the, more, the more rich and nourishing it becomes. I, I think it's, Magnificent. I first read it when I was an undergraduate, lo, those many years ago, and I've read it since while teaching it, and I've read it three more times in the last two weeks Mm -hmm. in preparation for our discussion. And I have to say that 
even though the story has uh, what is supposed to be a shocking ending, knowing that it's a shocking ending does not diminish the story for me at all on a rereading. Mm. The mm-hmm. story is just so rich. Um, but that's that's a personal opinion, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, As I Lay Dying is very different from this in, in one important way. Um, As I Lay Dying is a novel, which is... Uh, which I haven't read in many years, but I hope I'm remembering this right. Um, As L.A. Dying is a novel in which uh, a family is trying to transport the corpse of uh, the mother of the family, um, get her buried. I mean, and um, every chapter is told from a different viewpoint. They're all first-person narrations, um, one of which, in fact, and only one, if I recall correctly, is narrated from that the viewpoint of the mm-hmm. deceased. Mm-hmm. Um, and here, instead of having a multiplicity of quite specifically and in a way realistically identified narrative voices, we have one narrative voice that I think ultimately becomes maybe <clears throat> the center of the story. Um, let me say, let me sort of recap the story for mm-hmm. those who don't know it, and then we can talk about this. A Rose for Emily begins this way, and already we can see the uh, the density that you were talking about, Jesse. When Miss Emily Grierson died, our whole town went to her funeral. The men threw a sort of respectful affection for a fallen monument, the women mostly out of curiosity to see the inside of her house, which no one save an old Negro manservant, a combined gardener and cook, had seen in at least 10 years. What follows is a narration that shuttles back and forth in time, just as this first paragraph does. Right. They did that. I mean, let's just look at that first paragraph. She died. So obviously something happened before that. She was alive. The men are doing one thing. They have one set of motivations. The women, another set of motivations. So gender differences are clear here. Mm -hmm. Nobody had been inside there except for an old Negro manservant. So now there are race differences involved here. And because it's a servant rather than the whole town, we know that it's not, in fact, the whole town. It's the respectful people of this town. So there's there's race, class, gender already combined here. Mm -hmm. And it is projected over at least 10 years, there is a density of cultural compaction that I think one doesn't notice on a first reading. Mm -hmm. But on multiple readings, one realizes that all of these issues are involved in the story. So the story then goes on and telling the story in a straight line way, uh, we find out that uh, Miss Emily was raised by a father, uh, Mr. Grierson being quite a a stern father, but the only man really who seems to have ever entered Emily's life until one who will be mentioned later in the story. uh, She didn't really have suitors who could stand up to her father's glare. She lived with him until 
until he died. And when he did, um, she wouldn't acknowledge that for a few days until eventually the town came by and and forced her to relinquish the body. And when we first see her, she's sitting in the sitting room of the the Grierson house, which itself is, we're told it's an eyesore among eyesores because once upon a time, the Grierson house had been on the most select street in town, but the town had changed and now there were nothing but garages and such on that town, gas stations. And so these were all eyesores, but among them, her house now was an eyesore, both because it wasn't properly tended and because it stood out so badly Mm -hmm. as inappropriate um, as she was. Uh, Everything has extra meanings about how the town functions and how things mean. And so the town came and they buried him. Now, before he had died, he had taken care of everything, but um, she was in, had fallen into bad times uh, economically. Uh, it turns out that the house was basically all that was left her. Clearly not everything uh, was gone. She has money to provide the, the, the manservant to, with to buy groceries. Um, but Colonel Sartoris, whom we know from lots of other Faulkner works, is the mayor of the town and uh, comes to her and uh, and and he wants to help out. Colonel Sartoris invented an involved tale to the effect that Miss Emily's father had loaned money to the town, which the town, as a matter of business, preferred this way of paying. That is, instead of paying back the money, they just didn't ask her for taxes. Only a man of Colonel Sartoris' generation and thought could have invented it, and only a woman could have believed it. <laughs> so again, we have a compression across time, differences of class, differences of gender, differences of race, in fact, come up here as well, because Colonel Sartoris uh, comes from a family of slaveholders, as we know from having read books like Absalom, Absalom. So what happens? She, it turns out, if you tell the story in a straight line fashion, um, is basically alone. Uh, no one comes into her house. She doesn't see anyone else. There comes a time when, uh, when she begins to open the, the house to, uh, to children who come in and take China painting lessons from her. And so it's the, the, the daughters and the granddaughters of Colonel Sartoris and his generation who come in and do that. Eventually, the town begins to modernize free postal service is finally given, but she alone um, rejects having uh, a mailbox with her house number attached. Um, So mail still has to go to the post office and uh, the old Negro manservant picks it up for her. But we do find out the Negro's name at one point because she is reported to have said it. but the narrator never refers to the manservant as anything other than um, the Negro. One of the other people who come to see her, a delegation of the town, um, refers to him as a nigger. But uh, again, uh, that seems to be the town's way of speaking mm-hmm. of things. This is a 1930s uh, story. And uh, 
how we should take that name, uh, that, that appellation, I think is an important issue. Uh, the town comes to her, that is, they send delegations at first because she doesn't pay taxes, you know, once the administration changes. And she says, talk to Colonel Sartoris. I don't pay taxes. Colonel Sartoris has been dead for two years, but she stares them down. So they just write it off. She's there's something formidable about about Miss Emily. Um, after uh, at a certain point, um, they start. There's a smell that comes from her house. Um, nobody can get anybody to stop her, as they say. You would tell a lady that she smells. You know that's what Colonel Sartora says. So nope, they don't do that. So instead, they spread. At night, they sneak around and spread lime around her house to eventually get rid of the smell. Probably a dead rat in the walls or something. Mm -hmm. In the modernization, um, sidewalks are put down and a crew comes. The crew, who are called by that same, what we now take to be, uh, uh, a disreputable term. And a northerner, a Yankee, I'm sorry, um, who is their crew boss named Homer Barron. And after a while, the town sees Miss Emily and Homer Barron going around uh, uh, from time to time on a Sunday in the uh, the yellow buggy you can rent from the livery stable. Uh, people begin to talk. At first, they're saying, well, she certainly wouldn't marry a northerner. She would know. But then people start realizing, you know, she's impoverished. At least she'll have somebody. And anyway, he goes away, but eventually he comes back. And we found out that she's, in the interim, done a number of things. She has, for example, uh, bought poison, presumably to kill whatever it is that was in the house that was making a smell. And she's ordered a, a man's uh, toilet set that is a brush and so on, a silver handle and the initials HB, uh, and a man's dress suit and so on. He comes back to town, and then then he disappears. The end of the story is that uh, she has died. I guess we know she's died because the uh, the servant lets the world know that she's died. He opens the door to let people in and walks out the back door and is never seen again. And they go in to look around the house, uh, excuse me, they go in and, and, and they bury her. And once she is, in fact, finally buried, they can go around the house. And they realize there's one door upstairs. She lives entirely on the ground floor by this time <clears throat> that needs to be forced. They force it and they find a rose room, a rose for Emily. Turns out not to have to do with a flower, as one would suspect, but rather the room itself. The violence of breaking down the door seemed to fill the room with prevailing, pervading dust, a thin, acrid pall. Notice that that word is the same that one would talk about uh, funereal cloth. Mm-hmm. Pall, as of the tomb, seemed to lie everywhere upon this room, decked and furnished as for a bridal. Upon the valance, 
curtains of faded rose color upon the rose shaded lights upon the dressing table upon the delicate array of crystal and the man's toilet things backed with tarnished silver silver so tarnished that the monogram was obscured among them lay a collar and tie as if they had just been removed which lifted left upon the surface a pale crescent in the dust upon a chair hung the suit carefully folded beneath it the two mute shoes and the discarded socks This is years after Homer has failed to come back. The man himself lay in the bed. For a long while, we just stood there looking down at the profound and fleshless grin. The body had apparently once lain in the attitude of an embrace. But now the long sleep that outlasts love, that conquers even the grimace of love, had cuckled him. What was left of him rotted beneath what was left of the nightshirt had become inextricable from the bed in which he lay, and upon him and upon the pillow beside him lay that even coating of the patient and biting dust. Then we noticed that in the second pillow was the indentation of a head. One of us lifted something from it, and leaning forward that faint and invisible dust, dry and acrid in the nostrils, we saw a long strand of iron gray hair. (laughs) So Miss Emily, that we suddenly know in the last line, has been from time to time lying with the corpse of the lover who did not, in fact, uh, marry her, but um, she poisoned to keep him from leaving so that she would always have him, just as she always had the crayon, picture crayon, meaning colored pencils in today's Mm -hmm. parlance. Mm -hmm. Um, on picture of her father looking down at him. So the easiest thing to do is think of this as Southern Gothic. Mm-hmm. And it's a terrific example of Southern Gothic. But as I hope is clear just from the few passages that I read and the, the interlayering of the time and the, the building and the north and the south and the class, um, this is, as you said, it's dense. Mm. It is rich. It is something to chew on. And having said that much, let me ask you. So... What do you think now, coming back to the story? I I have a lot of questions, and I also have a lot of fun ideas. Um, one of the things that I was reminded of, I guess, on my second reading of it, is um, this is kind of like a Robert Block story, like Psycho. <laughs> you know, um, it's got that reveal at the end where, you know, oh, oh, now it explains what's going on up in that gothic house. Um that explains why he was acting so strangely earlier. Um, so it's got that sort of element to it. And I I, I also kind of like to think of this as a murder mystery. The problem is, is it's not laid out that way, right? It's not um, somebody investigating. But the narrator, whoever that is, and I have some ideas on that, uh, doesn't tell the story in a linear fashion. It's not wholly linear, linear anyways. So it's more like suspense horror, but it's definitely got that Southern Gothic um, uh, vibe. It's Southern Gothic and horror. You know, it's that that ending is really awesomely creepy. Um, <laughs> but another way of looking at it, I think, is um, is uh, yeah, the title "A Rose for Emily." There is no rose in the story, right? There's no uh, rose in a vase on a table. The Homer Baron doesn't show up with a rose, right? He is the rose. He is a rose that's pressed between two pages in a book in a certain sense, right? She presses him that way. Interesting metaphor. Yeah. 
she's she's preserving him for her life. And if we read it closely, and I think uh, I have, um, it sounds like he was gay. So the reason he's he's um, not going to marry her, and they have sort of a little tiff at one point, is because of that problem. Right? He likes spending his time with men, um, but. Uh, he's also a Yankee and a carpetbagger. <laughs> he's down here directing the reconstruction of the South in a certain sense, and he thinks, "Oh, I've got a, I've got a, a beard here on this lady Emily. Everybody in town respects her, um, but they also don't respect her." But ultimately, like, what's the coda for this story? She did it her way. <laughs> Right. Like the she gets her way throughout the story. Um uh after her father dies, right? The, she she tries to insist that he's not dead. Uh, eventually they convince her, no, no, he's dead after 3 days. Um but then from that point in the story, she's going to do it her way. She has students uh that come to learn the China lessons. Well, that ends. She just becomes more parsimonious. The uh, servant um I, I don't know how he's getting paid at all because must, she must be selling off furniture or something, right? There's no income. But she doesn't pay taxes. Um, she does it her way. The, uh, the, the, the town comes and says, you need to pay your taxes. The sheriff comes. You need to pay your taxes. She just like, no. I got a deal from Colonel Sartoris. Um, you know, I accepted it. Go talk to him. Um, I noticed also Colonel Sartorius. I I don't remember if he was in uh, as they lay dying, but um, I noticed it now, and I wouldn't have noticed it then that his name essentially means Colonel Clothes, <laughs> sartorial, you know, is having to do with clothing. And then I started noticing the other names. Um, so Homer Baron, uh, a Baron with one R, is like you know a a lord, um, but Homer. That got me going in another direction, which is um, this is kind of like the story of uh, of Calypso in the Odyssey. She uh, Calypso wants to keep uh, Homer, uh, sorry, not Homer, Odysseus uh, on her island with her forever, and he can't leave. But by the intervention of the gods, uh, she's told to give him an axe and let him chop down the trees and build a ship so that he can escape finally for home and his his real love far away. And in this story, there's no God intervening. The city tries to intervene a couple of times when they come to spread the lime in the middle of the night instead of confronting the lady about the fact that she just murdered a dude. Right? That smell is... <laughs> we We know... From reading it yep. closely, that smell is Homer stinking up the yep. place. And the the manservant doesn't do anything about it. Uh, Toby doesn't do anything about it. The city doesn't do anything about it. And they just let it happen. The poison. When the poison, she goes to buy poison, she doesn't say, oh yeah, it's for the rats. The city uh, employee there, or the... Uh, the druggist. Farm, the yeah. druggist employee does the thing that she's supposed to do is to say what it's for. Um, and that got me thinking about how that druggist um, wrote it on there. 
and we know about it from the narrator, but how did the narrator know about it? That it said when she got it home, four rats. How, uh, so there's some question is like, who, the, who is the narrator uh, gender-wise? It's not 100% clear if it's male or female. Um, how does she know what the, he or she know what was marked on the box of poison at her, at Emily's home? Is she Toby? I don't think so. Is he Toby? I don't think so. Who is this person? It's somebody of the town. Probably white, given the town. Uh, but there's so many questions that are brought up about, like, how do you understand this alien world where you've got a uh, a battle outside the town during the Civil War that has affected and I guess the Civil War itself, that is affected in a series of bizarre courtly attitudes towards females and bizarre, um, disgusting attitudes towards black people. It's, it's super rich with this dust that the, the, is all over the room of uh, Homer Barron's uh, funeral room. It's also that dust is all over the couches of of the living room that has never been used. And I was thinking that maybe that dust is the Homer Baron dust all over the place. It's like that lime that they spread around the house to try and reduce the smell. There's like a layer of dust and lies over everybody. And at the end of the story, we get that like delicious, you know... It feels like indecent exposure of what was actually going on. And it's, it feels like I'm being told this story by somebody who's like, hey, you have a purientistic interest in my town. Let me tell you a story. And we get one. We get a hell of a story. I, we sure do. I, I think that... Uh... Your your pointing to the name uh, makes me want to. Uh, I want to stay with that for a minute. <clears throat> the word baron, meaning uh, a particular rank of nobility in feudal Europe, um, actually comes from a root that means male. Baron um, is the Spanish word for male, the way we say male, um, and. That's what that's what Miss Emily wants. She wants a male. But as you said, if we read it carefully, um, see, she will persuade him yet. Then we said this is the narrator. Then we said she meaning Miss Emily will persuade him yet. That is to marry uh, her, marry her, uh, because Homer himself had remarked he liked men. And it was known that he drank with the younger men in the Elks Club that he was not a marrying man. Now, that, so, he's not a marrying man. He's a man, but he's not from the standpoint of a woman who wants a, a husband, the right kind of man. Nowhere in the story does it say that he's gay. Mm. Nowhere does it say in the story that those young men with whom he liked to drink in the Elks Club were gay. Mm -hmm. So what we have here, as you say, Jesse, it's just layers of dust and lies 
not only is Homer potentially understandable as her as as using her as a beard, which when she recognizes it, she's not going to have it. She doesn't get furious and yell at him. She simply kills him and makes him into her bra into her groom. Mm -hmm. She just, as you say, she always gets her way. When he goes off and he knows she knows he's expected to come back, she gets the rat poison and she's she's set up for it for when he returns. But it means that while he was in this town, and one of the reasons he wanted to come back to this town is because he had some friends there among the younger men. Mm -hmm. Times are changing. But we, whoever we are, you know, um, we don't mention these things, just as you wouldn't tell a lady to her face that she smells bad. Mm -hmm. This is a town built on hypocrisy, on dissimulation, on a pall, which is appalling mm -hmm. over everything that might be troubling. So when I think about the word Homer, I think of two things. One, uh, of course, as you say, there is uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 the putative ancient writer. Um, but also, Homer would be something that goes home, that brings you mm -hmm. home. And he, he is a Homer for her. He is a Homer for her. Because her father got taken away from her. But this man, they don't get to take away from her. Mm -hmm. She's got him there until her own death. She manages to control the world around her, not not the men. So what do we learn from ancient Greece? Well, in ancient Greece... Odysseus struggles mightily, not only with Calypso, but with Circe and others who would detain him, women who would detain him, uh, the sirens, mm -hmm. um, to get back to Penelope. This Homer isn't interested in getting back to Emily, uh, a word that, by the way, comes from a Proto-Indo-European root that means mother. Mm. Um, he's not interested in getting back to Emily. He's interested in getting back to the town where he's had some nice times. Mm -hmm. Uh, but she, he has to see her when he's there, and that's the last anyone ever sees of him once he walks into her door. Uh, just like Toby, the old Negro manservant who's mentioned only once, you go out into Emily's house. If you go out the back door, you can survive. If you can't get out the front door, <laughs> nobody can get out the front door um, because she's got everything under control. I think, for me, the best way to understand the narrator— going back to Homer, or at least those times, is as a Greek chorus. Yes. It's we this, this is, we that, right? We exactly, this. Exactly. And that's the very first, the, the very beginning of the story, right? When Miss Emily Grierson died, our whole town went to her funeral. The men this, the women that. We don't hear about the children. And in the very last, it's we saw this. Then we noticed that on the second pillow was the indentation of a head. One of us lifted something from. Yeah. If you were there, you know which one. No, this is the voice of the town. It's a Greek chorus. And so what we're seeing here is, I think, something like Medea. Mm -hmm. it, is, it is an act of a powerful, mad woman. 
And we're told explicitly about the madness in her family, mm-hmm. the crazy Aunt Wyatt, uh, with whom there had been a breach between her father and that branch of the family. And Miss Wyatt, that, that crazy aunt, sends, you know, she's the one who has children or her branch of the family has children, the two cousins who come to stay with her, with Miss Emily, for a bit when the father dies. Um, and But she sends them away. Right. There is madness in the family. There is power in the family. This is this is mythic. And I've got to tell you, I, as I said, I first read this as an undergraduate. I'm class of 66. <laughs> right. So we're talking here. I'm, my 60th high school reunion is coming up this <laughs> coming summer. Right. And this story still. Casts. It's monumental in my mind. Mm. This is a mythic story. Miss Emily, I mean, when you think of Medea, you think of her dead children, you know, what a terrible crime Medea has committed. You don't think of the, the children individually. You don't think of, you know, what it is that she's angry at. It's Medea that you think about, mm-hmm. right? And and I think that arose for Emily. It's Miss Emily we think about. Yep. But in fact, at least... This is what I meant when I spoke in the beginning. I think Faulkner is using this as a way to get us to try to understand the town. What is Southern culture like? What has happened? What are they caught in? How, what kind of world grew Miss Emily? And for those who haven't read Faulkner, you have, but I'll remind uh, us so that others will know. Faulkner created a fictional town, a fictional Yoknabatoffa County. Right? And Yoknabatoffa County has in it the town in which we find Miss Emily. We find the Sartoruses. He wrote 11 novels and co- story collections set in Yoknabatoffa County. If you get, uh, I think it's Go Down Moses, you can find, which is the name of a story and one of the collections, you can find a map of Yoknabatoffa in the, in the frontispiece of that book. He created a world, and he did it over decades. And right here in his first published story, I think what he's asking us to understand is that this, is, this story happens to be about Miss Emily. But the, really, this is a story about the world of Yoknabatoffa County, the world of Miss Emily, a fallen world, the, the class, race, the history, uh, economics, the, the males versus females, and the residue of that failed war. Mm. I, I think it's, it's a story, at least for me, reading and reading again and again. I'm with you. Well, that's why there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF Audio.